I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest as always. She has recovered from a suicide attempt and the resulting brain injury to become an inspirational and educational writer. She is the author of Beat Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain and a memoir, Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin. Welcome to the show, Debbie Hampton. How are you doing today? Thank you, David. Uh, I like your audience, introverted. What do you say, introverts? Introverted athletic entrepreneurs and leaders. That sounds like a juxtaposition, <laughs> but I'm sure it's not. No, <laughs> but it absolutely is interesting. Not. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, and people don't have to be athletic or introverted or even an entrepreneur or, or a leader. But the athletic part is there because obviously, yeah, as you have wrote about in, in your books, there has to be that mentality to train and get better. And uh, there's usually some inspiration behind it. And you are absolutely the, the, the model for that. Can you kind of walk through uh, your story from uh, the memoir, uh, Sex, Suicide, and Serotonin? Like that is a sharp, sexy title, but uh, there is a dark side to it. What, what occurred? Oh, yeah. And I also wanted to say that I think we both, the physical is attached to all of that because I've arrived at the conclusion as well as you in science that mm -hmm. there is no separation from our brain and our body. Not our health is health. Exactly. If you want need in your life and your mental arena or your physical arena, it's all connected. As I found out, uh, I had a pretty normal upbringing in the 60s and 70s, I'm telling my age, um, <laughs> in North Carolina, and okay. a very middle-class upbringing, uh, very educated parents, but as was typical of the time, they weren't incredibly emotionally intelligent. Oh, so okay. I did not learn emotionally intelligent coping skills or how to be mentally healthy. And so I learned from my environment, which we all do. Yes, we, yeah. we learn how to cope with problems or anything mm. that arises from the examples we see. Right. So what I learned was to freak out and overreact. And I didn't have a bad upbringing at all. But as a matter of fact, I had a pretty good childhood, um, high school and college, which actually was part of a detriment or a downfall because I never really got to experience adversity oh, and challenges. Okay. So mm. I was used to being, I was on varsity cheerleading squad. Um, I was a model in my, uh, later years and 20s i married my high school sweetheart and we went through college together so i never really got a chance to like test my chops or build resilience or any of that so i was married to the the 
sweetheart, the high school sweetheart for 18 years. Wow. High school sweetheart. Jeez, yeah. 18 and years. And I don't wow. advise it. <laughs> because <laughs> we were both good people, but we weren't right. who we were going to be yet. Exactly. And, and as we grew, uh, it wasn't okay with the other person, the way that we were growing. He, I always had anxiety when I was mm. growing up. I didn't know that's what it was, but I was one of those shy introverts. So I'm kind of an extrovert in small settings, like one of one. Yes, yeah. But <laughs> in a large, I mean, I'm perfectly fine by myself. And my mother is an extreme extrovert. Uh, so I always felt like, I always thought, what is wrong with me growing up? Because I wasn't like that. And I always uh, felt pressured to pretend to be otherwise. But long story short, I didn't know how to cope when life got difficult. And hmm. life got difficult after um, about 16 years of marriage and several affairs and 11 moves to, no, I'm sorry, 18 moves to 11 different states. Jeez. I followed his career. Gotcha. But I did that because I was scared. I was anxious. So I was more than happy to hide behind him and let him take the lead. So after all that moving, I became very isolated and more depressed. And has, as he grew more and more powerful and so, gained social recognition and up the corporate ladder, I shrunk. Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? Then please check out thehardybrain.ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. Hmm. And okay. became a stay-at-home mom of two, two sons who are now young adults. And my world got smaller and my hmm. power and self-esteem got smaller as his grew. And then my best friend in the world, my brother, who was also only 10 months older than me, so we were closer than close, uh, developed AIDS and Whoa. died. He died yeah. of AIDS, wow. In the early 90s when the huge epidemic took place. I mean, right. he was part of that first wave. Hmm. when, And I was in my early 30s, and so was he. And uh, we, at the time he got it, we didn't really even know. I mean, we knew what AIDS was, but we didn't even really know if it was contagious or how it spread. And I had my first son was an infant at that time. And I would set his porta crib up in the hospital room. Okay. And I'm not sure I even believed in God, but I would say, God, please don't let my baby get AIDS. But he, I took care of him for two years. Right. And then after he passed, my men, I mean, as you know, being a caregiver is extremely taxing on your mental health. And I, I so. have an infant. 
So I felt like Gumby being pulled on both ends. And after he died, I never really recovered. And I didn't really deal with the grief and the loss. I didn't know how. I did what I had seen. I swept it under the rug and kept going. Hmm. Uh, And the marriage deteriorated more and more and more. We had a second son. Um, he con- my ex continued to move and wanted me and the kids to go, and I did not want that. So we eventually, after 18 years of marriage, went our separate ways. And then, of course, because I had never developed any skills, I thought the answer was to find another man. Okay. So I jumped right into another relationship with a person very similar to the first husband. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, they cheated on me, and they didn't have two kids with me, so they probably even, it was more challenging than the marriage and more painful. Mm-hmm. So after, I don't know, a, a big debacle with that, I decided, and I mean, my self-esteem was so low from, all the ugly marriage divorce proceedings and years and years of just being depressed and isolated. I honestly thought that I was not good for my kids. And I honestly thought that they'd be better off without me. So I tried to end my life. And I mean, I, I, I did it pretty good. Mm -hmm. I put myself in a coma for a week and oh, wow. when I came out of the coma, I couldn't speak. Um, I had serotonin syndrome, mm-hmm. which is a constant shake or muscle spasms. Uh, I was severely mentally disabled. Wow, what on earth did you did you swallow there? And you were going for full out, I'm leaving oh, this world. I right? meant business. I, yeah. I tell in the book, um, I think it was over 90 drugs and <laughs> I mean, individual pills. Right. And most of them were brain pills. Uh, so that, and I actually, um, they had resuscitate me several times. I mean, I actually almost did succeed, but I'm glad I did not. Because in the years after the brain injury, mm-hmm. my ex-husband sued me for custody of the kids and took them away, which right. at the time was devastating. Oh, but, but I would not have been able to take care of them in the shape that I was in. And it was also kind of a blessing in disguise as the whole brain injury was and as a lot of life challenges are because especially with the brain injury, Um, All those connections that had been formed in childhood and during my life got severed. And I kind of got to start from scratch. I mean, I didn't have the social foundation of preconceived beliefs anymore Hmm. or even uh, polite norms. I mean, I didn't know... uh, what was polite when you ate and my kids i remember they laughed at me so hard because i didn't know who won the civil war 
<laughs> they just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. In the years following the brain injury, I learned everything I could about my brain and about rehabilitating your brain and about recovering and getting mentally healthy and emotionally healthy. And I didn't. Well, how, how, how did this first start then? Because you're saying that exactly. you didn't have social norms about eating. So how did you go from that to learning as much as possible about the brain to rehabilitate yourself? Well, and also I thought you were going to say, how'd you go from wanting to die to wanting to learn everything you could about living? Well, I had, I had an experience in Hawaii um, about six months or three months, I'm sorry, after the brain injury. My okay. other brother, who is older, four years older than me, and I went to Hawaii on a trip just for vacation because I think he knew I needed something positive in my life and to live for. Yeah. I was still severely injured. I mean, I couldn't communicate, but I had him with me. And I used to be a really good swimmer. I was a lifeguard all through high school and college and used to swim competitively. Okay. So we went snorkeling the first day we got there. I was going to say, he didn't, he didn't let you like jump over the board. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he, I he took you. And I put on the mask and okay. then and you breathe out of And I had a real hard time figuring that out. I would imagine. Yes. But I started kicking around this little lagoon that we were at. It was a bay. And mm -hmm. it opened up into the ocean. And around the lagoon, it was calm. And you could see all the colorful fishies and all kinds of pretty stuff. But then I kind of went out towards the opening of the ocean. And it was in Hawaii. And there are coral mounds on the bottom of the ocean. And... I kicked my fin off and lost my fin and the waves oh, no. and the current was strong. And I mean, it became a life or death situation where I was like gasping for air and swallowing water. And I made it over to some coral rocks. And as you may know, they're really sharp and they were cutting me. And my brother was doing his own thing, snorkeling somewhere. So I saw this little sailboat bobbing in the bay and I used to be a swimmer. So I thought, okay, I'm going to swim to that. So I did longest swim of my life and I hung <laughs> over the side of it yelling, help, help. And this hippie-ish looking man came over kind of like, he was doing hallucinogenics. It was like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? But <laughs> he plopped me into a, like a little canoe and rowed me to shore. But it was a real life or death situation. It just made and you feel that way, correct? Needless to say, I didn't snorkel again the whole time we were there. <laughs> and it didn't occur to me until I got home. But I got home and I thought, wait a minute, three months ago, I tried to kill myself. And here I was 
faced with a life or death situation. And I could have just slipped under the water yes. and quietly finished what I'd started. Why did I do that? And I can't, I had the realization and I came to the conclusion that I really did want to live. And all that chatter in my head was telling me I was stupid. I wanted to die. All that stuff was just my chatter in my head. It wasn't mm. really me or the essence of me or what I wanted. Right. So I decided I did want to live and I started acting like it. And I started seeking out anything and everything that I could learn about healing my brain, healing my body, and healing myself emotionally. And I started trying all these alternative therapies like neurofeedback, hyperbaric oxygen, and they worked. And they do. Yes. These, these practitioners were an incredible resource of information. And my neurofeedback practitioner told me about Norman Doidge's book, The Brain That Changes Itself. Yes. And classic after book. reading that, that right there is a manual on how to heal your brain. Every brain injury is different and every brain is different. But that right there was my prescription. I followed it to heal my brain. And what I found was healing my brain healed me emotionally. The two are connected. You can't separate them. And as my brain and my emotions and my spirit improved, so did my life. Wow. So that's how it went from there to there. <laughs> no, that is so impactful. And that's, that's what I've noticed with so many patients I've worked with uh, in, in the brain injury arena is that uh, the, the physical builds the emotional and mental. And if we even look at the pathways, if we wanted to geek out is that, yeah, everything starts at a receptor that goes through a nerve that goes up someplace into the brain. And that's how the brain works is it's stimulated by the outside world and our body. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, I would have big emotional breakthroughs and then they would be followed by or accompanied by physical or vice versa. Yes. It never, never was separate. I mean, the two were always intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. So what was kind of the process then? Which different therapies did you try? And did you get different emotional responses with different therapies? I would say the ones that were most instrumental in my healing was your feedback. And mm -hmm. I mean, I did that religiously. Like my practitioner was only open four days a week. Okay. Or I would have done it five days a week. I did it four days a week for a year at least. Wow. I mean. That is dedication. Yeah. Well, I, I saw improvement and I exactly. wanted to improve. 
And what I realized is that may have been the first time my, my brain ever got balanced as far as anxiety and depression. I mean, it healed my brain with a lot of other issues too. Yes. And when I stopped seeing any improvement in neurofeedback, I tried um, brain state. There are offshoots of neurofeedback that are, that you can do at home now, but you couldn't when I was healing. And I did that 80 sessions. I drove an hour away to Raleigh um, 80 times to do that. And before they do any of those, uh, they do a brain map. Yes, exactly. The practitioner told me at the end of my trip, not at the beginning, that mine was the worst she'd ever seen. (laughs) Yeah. But I would liken uh, neurofeedback to like waking your brain up. For people that don't know what it is, it's they actually attach electrodes to different points on your brain that correspond to different things and electrically stimulate those points given what they scientifically know is optimal. And you get positive or negative reinforcement in the form of a movie playing or a Pac-Man eating dots or something. And your brain learns subconsciously to keep the brain waves at the point in the optimal set range. And the learning continues when you're not in this session. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like this swimming cap that you put over your head. And the electrodes, they're not putting anything in the brain, but they're reading your brain waves. And there's different frequencies of brain waves and different parts of the brain. And yeah, as a practitioner who's, who's using neurofeedback, it's a great tool to help the brain regulate in different brain waves. And those brain waves are actually different states. Right. And yeah, this is why I was so curious about kind of the emotional aspect too that you were getting with, with the neurofeedback. Um, but it also helped you out physically as well because... It was regulating how the brain controls your body or how it perceives it, correct? Uh, she, We would train different places on my motor strip, mm-hmm. and I would feel what I very technically came to call the tinglies okay. in the places we were training. Uh, like I could feel my arms waking up because right after the brain did, my arms didn't naturally swing when I walked anymore. They didn't know what to do. They just hung by my side. Right. And a lot of my speech issues, uh, along with the brain injury comes like muscle tension and Mm -hmm. muscle clenching. And a lot of my, my speech issues were because it was like my jaw was wired shut. So, uh, we would train, I mean, there were times we actually put the electrodes on my jaw, but I could feel it loosen up and I would speak better. But the next most instrumental thing, and I still do this today, is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. 
And when I was healing again, I think I did like 60 sessions in maybe two or three months because you want to get a baseline level of oxygen in your blood. And what hyperbaric oxygen does, it's a pressurized environment. Like it's a capsule or a room that you get in that forces concentrated levels of oxygen in your blood. You're right. And you need and, this oxygen to kind of start to heal at a cellular level. Now, and uh, I don't, I don't know if this is scientifically backed, but <laughs> I will say that hyperbaric oxygen can help anything. My practitioner has seen paralyzed people move limbs. She's seen autistic people speak for the first time. Right. There is nothing in your body that is not going to benefit from more oxygen. Yeah. Actually, I had a, had a similar patient come in. It was a failed suicide overdose. And uh, where he was coming from, uh, the practitioners had told him that if he didn't reach a certain kind of level, that he'd probably be stuck there. And uh, I told him right away that, well, no, there's always an extra level of performance. Good for you. There's, yeah, like I train athletes as well and entrepreneurs and leaders that are peak performers and they're trying to activate the same pathways as somebody with a brain injury who's trying to improve and to be honest the person with a brain injury is probably training harder than the athlete <laughs> like it is a lot of work and it is motivating to see people go through this and to, to just yeah see that glimpse of getting better and building on it and building on it. So uh, what else did you notice in this journey kind of progression wise that uh, was telling you that, yeah, I'm, I'm getting back and uh, not just that in, in a better, different way. Well, the better I got, the more I learned and the more I learned, the better I got. And I think mm. what was so empowering that we don't tell people and it isn't the predominant thinking is that we have the power to influence our brains, how they operate, how they think, and our lives. We really are in control. And I had always been like Dorothy with the red slippers on. I had the power to change my life and to change my mental health and make things better. I just never read the user's manual to my brain as to how to do it. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of the mission that I'm on now is to educate everyone, not just people that had brain injuries or that won't optimal perf athletic performance but everybody we can all improve our brains and improve our mental health and our lives because Absolutely. what we experience is an interpretation of our brain yes there is no real objective reality 
we all see a subjective reality through a lens. And that lens is our brain subconscious. And usually it's made up of our wounds and our hurts. But, and that's the way I lived and why mm -hmm. I wanted to die. But what I realized in this process is that I have the power to change that lens. I can't change what happens, but I can change the way I think about it, the way I react to it, and the way I want to behave. Right. And I really am not a proponent of just think positive. And a lot <laughs> of people confuse that with what I'm saying. And that's not what I'm saying. So how, how can know, they confuse that? Like uh, where, where are they getting that confusion and where would you like to, to take them then? Well, I think just think positive is wishing. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you have, you have, I, I call myself an optimal, optimistic realist. Okay. You have to see the good and the bad. And you have to consciously make a choice at each point. How am I going to behave? What is going to be in my best interest? And analyze why you're thinking this way. Is this really what you think based on the information, the current information? Or is this some leftover belief from childhood or fear from childhood or from your ex or whatever. When we take control of our minds and our mental health, we take control of our life. And this all is based on a concept that was confirmed by Michael Merzenich in the 1970s called neuroplasticity. Right, yes. They used to think your brain was pretty much set after some critical growth periods in childhood. But what he confirmed, and other scientists have since then, is that your brain changes all throughout your life. Yeah, absolutely, and, it does. And it is basically shaped and structured according to what happens in your childhood. So you end up living from that script. Yes. And thinking that's the truth. And to Until echo on that, how we Until develop is how we perform. Right. And how we perform is how we decline. And then you toss in injuries and trauma on top of it. <laughs> yes. So how did this occur with yourself then? Well, um, what I learned is that I, I could actually influence and shape the neuroplasticity or the change in my brain. And because I was brain injured, my brain was making or had a lot of connections to make. So for instance, uh, manual dexterity was really difficult for me at first. I still write like a third grader because think of all the years in school. Whoa, that whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, stop right there. You write like a third grader, but you've published two different books and are working on a third one. No, I'm talking about the physical act of writing. Uh, okay. 
when I first, after the brain injury, I had to learn how to write on like the, those dry erase boards, like a Kendra Gardner does. Yes. Because the connections to make movements in my hands were not formed yet. And you're so, still able to process kind of the, the way you are now very consciously and fluently with, with your words. Um, so how frustrating was it to not be able to, to do these things we learned in elementary school, like hold and write a, write with a pen? Oh, please understand that, that right after the brain injury, I was not where I am now mentally. Right. I mean, okay. I was uh, severely mentally impaired. Mm. And I mean, I would say for a long time, I probably wasn't even aware that there were deficits hmm. okay. because, and I have a lot more empathy and understanding for people that are disabled, maybe mentally now, because, and I, maybe they're not like this. I mean, this is a big assumption, but I was not aware of how impaired I was. Oh, okay. Until you start recovering and then mm. you're in that precipice where you know you're not normal. Right. And you know there's a difference between who you were and where you need to be. And that was actually more difficult than the early periods where I was just brain injured and I could be brain mm. injured. I wasn't trying to be anything else. But in that interim uh you it was very stressful because i was trying to be normal right and i obviously was not normal <laughs> wow and then what were you able to accomplish sort of after this frustration of not being normal and how did you start to get through it like uh when there's frustration, a lot of people uh, go down another wrong path, but but you didn't. What what happened? Well, I've always been very hard headed and very determined, and I had my kids taken away. Um, mm. I, all my friends had left because I mean I wasn't able to speak. I wasn't able to socialize, as anybody with a brain injury will tell you. I mean, just being awake takes a lot of mental energy. Yes. And um, I just, I told myself early on, if I have to live there, I am not living like this. This is not going to be the end of my story. It's not going to end like this. Amazing. And I, I really, I educated myself and I explored every therapy I could. And if I saw any merit to it, I didn't care if there were signs to back it up or what other people said. I did it until I stopped seeing results. And then uh, I would find the next thing. And then I would find the next thing. And I would say finally after about three years, after the brain injury, doing all this therapy 
And I was also doing daily therapy on my own because exercise, as you may know, is probably one of the best things you can do for your brain. So I exercised every single day for like three years. But I got in the best shape of my life in my 40s. I, I mean, and I was pragged, I was reading out loud, Dr. Seuss. I mean, I was doing all this stuff on my own. Yes. And I think that's what I want to impart to others is you don't have to go to that extreme. I was trying to heal from brain injury, but the, the habits that make up our life and what we do every day, exercise, what we eat, what we say to ourselves make our existence physical mental spiritual everything and Uh, that really is up to us and it's a matter of little bitty choices every single day and in those choices over time you make your life and you actually shape your brain we have a lot more control than I ever thought we did or than most people think we do. Right. Wow. That is such a powerful statement and I absolutely love it. And I don't think that we can build too much more on that message. Um, People need to find you, though, and read your things if they want more detail into how to achieve it. But just your positive attitude and your go-forward approach on everything is, is motivating to everyone listening in. So how would they find you and how would they get more information from you? Well, David, I have a website called thebestbrainpossible.com. Okay. And- it, I've had it since probably 2015, so it's really old or even earlier than that. And it started telling about all that I was learning about the brain and how to heal yes. your brain and the brain injury. But now it's turned into more of a science-based how to, how to guide your mind so okay. that you can improve your life and your mental health Mm. now you're also writing for the huffington post correct and mind body green i have in the past yeah excellent these days i write more for myself i'm working on a book called how to use mindfulness as a mental health tool and i get up every morning before my job and work on that for a couple hours and I've written two other books, as you mentioned. One is Beat Depression and Anxiety by Changing Your Brain. And that is basically not just for people with depression and anxiety, but it's a user's manual. When you understand how your brain works, you can help it be healthier and happier. Yes. I'm not saying depression in real. But depression is a brain pattern Mm. and we can change our brain patterns. That's a good way to put it. And then my other book that you mentioned, Sex, Suicide, Serotonin, is more of a, 
Um, it's a self-help book in disguise, but it, it will tell you more about how I healed emotionally and spiritually and overcame the ingrained, my ingrained ways of thinking and living. Right. Wow. So for everyone listening in, definitely go out, buy those books and reach out to Debbie. Uh, you are a wealth of information and inspiration, and I appreciate your time and, and your, your message on, on the hardy brain. For everyone listening in, stay tuned to the next episode of the hardy brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care. 